0: What? 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 I know how we can run everybody out of rock reach. How? We'll kill the firstborn male child in every household. Too Jewish. Shalom and welcome to the Too Jewish radio show with Rabbi Sam Kohan and Friends, a weekly serving of everything Jewish. We'll have a great hour together today of news, music, comedy, and conversation. Our guest this morning is Rabbi Seth Farber, 2022 winner of the Samuel S. and A. Irma Kohan Memorial Foundation Award for service to the Jewish people in the field of unity. We'll also have a visit from our expert on the international Jewish scene, Tom Price. Please email your comments to us at 2JewishRadio18 at gmail.com or visit us on the web at 2JewishRadio.com. The opinions of the host and guests on 2Jewish are their own and not those of the radio station. 2Jewish is paid for by 2Jewish radio programs and podcasts, Tucson, Arizona. And now, here's Rabbi Sam Kohan and (laughs) 2Jewish.
1: Shalom! I have some big news, at least family-wise, to tell you all about here on Too Jewish This Morning. My first grandson, Ezra Benicio Kohan, was born in Texas last week. And my wife Sophie, my 96-year-old dad, Rabbi Baruch Kohan, and I all attended his bris last Monday. It was a small and lovely celebration. Entirely appropriate because, of course, my grandson is small. Well, uh, as an 8-pound, 5-ounce baby, he wasn't actually small for a baby, mind you. But still, that's pretty small for a human. I am now officially a grandfather, a Saba. And instead of making me feel old, it just makes me feel wonderful. There's nothing in the world quite so extraordinary as holding a new baby, representing the continuing generations of Jews entering the great covenant of Abraham, which dates back thousands of years. By tradition, it actually goes back 3,800 years of continuous dedication to the one God, a religious contract to serve in partnership with the Creator to work to build a world of goodness, blessing, and justice. I know that circumcision seems like a peculiar way to create a covenant with God. The old joke, and boy, there are a lot of brisk jokes, and I've told a lot of them here on Too Jewish, is that Abraham is standing there. He looks up at God and says, you say we're the chosen people and you want us to cut off the tips of what exactly? In truth... It's not actually the tip, anyway. Societies, both ancient and modern, have utilized circumcision and used it as a form of differentiation and a symbol of male restraint for millennia. It's not just a Jewish experience— The ancient Egyptians practiced universal circumcision. Jews, of course, have done it all along. Muslims adopted it from us, although they performed circumcision at the age of 13, when Abraham's oldest son Ishmael was circumcised, according to the Torah. And while there are some medical advantages to it for Jews, Brit Milah is a form of ritual connection to the covenant, a commitment to a life of mitzvot and holiness. And, of course, it's all done quickly and with a minimum of discomfort. My grandson's namesake, the scribe Ezra lived about 2,500 years ago and was in many ways responsible for the continuation of Jewish life after the Babylonian exile. It was this original Ezra who began the public reading of Torah in Jerusalem after the return to Israel, and he was the prototype for the scholars and rabbis who have followed him ever since. My own grandson Ezra is likewise the descendant of generations of rabbis. Not all of us became rabbis like me, of course, but many. And while I have no objections should he follow that course in life, I hope and pray that he has, most of all, a life of blessing and happiness and goodness. Right now he is, of course, extraordinarily cute, But, as we say in the Ceremony of Circumcision, the brief liturgy for a Brit Milah ceremony, may this little one grow to be great in Torah and good deeds. To play us in this morning, here's the best Brit Milah song of all, the Sephardic Circumcision Song of Abraham, as performed by the ensemble Apollo's Fire.
2: When the rain brought Al Caposaria, mirava in nel cielo e in la estrelia, figura lusanta e la Juderia, che havia de la serra, Avramadino, Avramadino, Padre querido, Padre benigno, Luz de Israel. Abel
0: I you.
1: For my grandson Ezra's Breet Mila, his bris, last week. Sa katon Gadolihi May this little one grow to be great. Our guest here on Two Jewish This Morning is the 2022 winner of the Kohan Memorial Foundation Award for Service to the Jewish People. It's Rabbi Seth Farber who receives his Kohan Award for his great work for the unity of Klal Yisrael. The people of Israel this Friday night at Congregation Beit Simcha will be at the JCC, not our usual location, on River Road in Tucson. Rabbi Farber's organization, E-Team, works to have Jews accepted fully by the state of Israel for legal and ritual purposes. Find out how he does that when we come back in a few moments here on Too Jewish. We are the soul of Tucson. We are your neighbors
0: and friends. Our commitment to provide the very best relies on the finest products and services you, our community, has to offer. Together, we make Tucson thrive. When we win, you win. Casino del Sol, the
1: soul of Tucson. Enterprise of the Pasquayaki tribe. We are delighted to welcome to Two Jewish, Rabbi Seth Farber, the founder and executive director of ETeam, an important organization that helps Jews become accepted by the state of Israel, that works to create... Um, the acceptance of religious plurality and recognition of rights within Israel itself. He is the winner of the 2022 Kohan Memorial Foundation Award for his work for Jewish unity. Good morning and welcome back to Two Jewish. Thank
3: you so much.
1: So um, briefly, tell us just encapsulate the work of E-Team, because it's one of the most complicated things we've had to explain to people uh, since you received the award.
3: E-Team has a very simple vision. We see a state of Israel that's respectful and responsive to the Jewish needs of the Jewish people. Uh, Unlike the states or many Western countries, Israel has a very strong connection between religion and state. And that means when people want to live religious or Jewish lives, they need the state apparatus to enable them to do so. When they want to get married or buried or divorced or converted, it's not just a voluntary activity. It actually needs the state apparatus to be behind them. And the state doesn't really understand the nuances of Jewish life and the Jewish needs of the Jewish people. And what we essentially do is service as a service provider, but also a window into Jewish life in Israel, both for people in Israel and for people overseas who want to use Israel's services. We enable them by empowering them to live Jewish lives the way they want to live Jewish lives. And we also have a legal department and public policy department that helps transform the way Israel provides those services. So we've fundamentally transformed legally in Israel the way burial works, to a certain extent the way marriage works, to a large extent the way conversion works, by a lobbying and particularly by working together with governmental agencies to, uh, to change things by sensitizing them to the way Jewish life works around the world.
1: You know, uh, I'll never forget when I was in Israel, this is a long time ago, 25 years or so, um, I was asked to do a funeral at a kibbutz. Why was the funeral at a kibbutz? It was for someone who lived in Jerusalem, but they had come from the former Soviet Union, and their Jewish status wasn't clear. They couldn't be buried in an official bury ground, burial ground. They had to be buried in a kibbutz burial ground.
3: It's a big tragedy, this, the whole thing. Instead of welcoming immigrants, particularly from the former Soviet Union, who were cut off for so many years from Jewish life, the religious establishment often gives them a you know slap in the face or a-
1: cold shoulder. Yeah it's become a, an enormous problem in part because of the very demographics. A team works of course to counsel people and to advise and to lobby, but the legal part of it is important. So
3: what's interesting is that on a given day we get 30 to 40 calls from families in Israel or from overseas who want to live Jewish lives in Israel in one way or another. A lot of them are immigrants from the former Soviet Union and We do a lot of things for them. First of all, we give them the information. Often we'll take them into rabbinical courts. We'll take them to marriage registration bureaus. We'll navigate together with them, holding their hand, the burial process in Israel. Now, sometimes we can't make enough progress in the short amount of time when it comes to burial to enable them to be buried in a Jewish cemetery. Right,
1: recognized by the state, sure.
3: Right, but that doesn't mean they're not Jewish, and it doesn't mean they don't deserve a Jewish burial, and then we'll help them in one of the alternative burial sites. But it's it's a big tragedy, and I think there's an opportunity. There's an opportunity for Israel to be much broader in terms of its relationship to Jewish life around the world. And unfortunately, the people who were in control sometimes not all of them, many of them are very good people who are very sensitive, but some of them are have a myopic view of what Jewish life is, and the team has set its goal to change that and to enable Jews around the world to be respected and not disenfranchised.
1: We will talk much more with Rabbi Seth Farber. He's the winner of the 2022 Kohan Memorial Foundation Award. Those awards will take place uh, this coming Friday night at Congregation Beit Simcha for his work for unity for the Jewish people and the organization e team will talk much more with Rabbi Farber when we come back in a moment here on To Jewish. Beit Simcha, the house of joy, a fabulous synagogue in northwest Tucson, in the Catalina foothills, continues to celebrate wonderful services, classes, and events established by passionate, caring congregants and me, Rabbi Sam Kohan just four years ago. Beit Simcha is a vibrant, vital community that strives daily to serve God with joy. Progressive congregation in northwest Tucson and the foothills, Beit Simcha is open to everyone throughout the metropolitan area providing weekly Shabbat services, youth and adult education academy courses, social justice opportunities, outreach, and cultural. Jewish programming. Join us in person for Shabbat services or come on Facebook Live. Go to our website, BeitSimchaTucson.org, B-E-I-T-S-I-M-C-H-A-Tucson.org. We welcome members and guests in our sanctuary in person. Call 520-276-5675 for more information Religious school continues for school-aged children or grandchildren. Join us for our fabulous Hebrew school, Bar and Bat Mitzvah programs, Torah Tykes experience, confirmation and teen programs, all in a fun, relaxed setting with great Jewish learning. Beit org, Tucson.org, B-E-I-T-S-I-M-C-H-A Tucson.org to sign up. Beit Simcha's services, classes and events... Are open to everyone. Come in person Friday night at 6 30 p.m., Saturday morning, 9 a.m. Torah study, 10 a.m. services. You can email me directly, rabbi at Beit Simcha or join us every Friday night on our Facebook page about evening celebration services at 6 30, Saturday morning at 10 a.m. Facebook page is Beit Simcha Tucson, B E I T S I M C H A Tucson. All of our musical services are in-person and virtual, and so are our Adult Education Academy classes, live and on Zoom. Access those through the website, Beit Coming up fast, this Friday night at the Tucson J, Rabbi Seth Farber will receive the Kohan Award for his contributions to Jewish unity. For more information about Beit Simcha to come to services, our great religious school and Torah text programs, fantastic bar and bat mitzvahs, confirmation high school programs, Weddings and so on, and rich array of Adult Education Academy courses live and on Zoom, and all of our services in person and on Facebook. Go to Beit Simcha Tucson.org, B E I T S I M C H A Tucson.org, or call 520 276 5675. That's 276 5675, Beit Simcha Tucson.org. Join me, Rabbi Sam Kohan, in the fastest growing congregation. All of Arizona in its exciting beginning years. If you have a question, comment, compliment, or a criticism, a kvetch or kvel, please email us at 2JewishRadio18 at gmail.com. That's too Radio 18 at gmail, or come to our website, 2jewishradio.com. You can hear all past and present shows through the website, 2jewishradio.com, streaming us from there, or downloading us from the Apple iTunes Store as ridiculously popular Jewish podcasts. Top 10 in America, according to Moment Magazine, almost 200,000 downloads on Podbean and on spotify post a rating review to jewish wherever you listen to our podcasts those comments help the stories we share last a lifetime and are passed down from generation to generation known for our compassionate commitment to the families we serve evergreen mortuary and cemetery has faithfully served the tucson community and the jewish community for over 100 years We help thousands of families plan and carry out celebrations of loved ones in unique and special ways and assist them in sharing those lifetimes of stories meaningfully. The most beautiful and tranquil final resting place in all of southern Arizona, Evergreen's tall pines shade peaceful, grassy fields. You can count on Evergreen for superior service and the highest degree of integrity. Our informative, well-trained staff is here to assist you with a full range of on-site services. Call Evergreen. 520-888-7470, 520-888-7470. 520-888-7470, 520-888-7470. While we serve the whole community, our experience conducting Jewish funerals, Reform, conservative, and orthodox is second to none. We have sections dedicated to all religious faiths, can help you arrange for your future needs or your immediate ones. Whether you choose to hold a traditional funeral service or a completely individualized ceremony, either in person or online or both, Our goal is to help you create a meaningful, personalized service based upon your unique needs in a place of reflection, tradition, and serenity. Evergreen Mortuary and Cemetery offers the best to the community and to you. Call 520-888-7470 to speak to a family advisor at Evergreen. Call 520-888-7470. We welcome our expert on the international Jewish scene, Tom Price. Good morning, Tom. Good morning, Rabbi. We were talking last week about the Jews of Georgia, and I I don't mean with Atlanta as its capital, uh, and Azerbaijan, and beginning to get into the Azerbaijan-Armenia conflict over Nagorno-Karabakh. This is a part of the world I think not very many Americans have been to. It's a part of the world that, uh, while it has these ancient jewish communities not very many jews have visited uh and so that conflict seems particularly like distant obscure and it it had something to do with it was buried within the soviet union for a long time maybe you can clarify like what's going on
2: okay before we get into the conflict which has absolutely nothing to do with jewish communities i want to talk a little bit more in detail about each of these separate Jewish communities. Sure. And then we'll talk about the conflict. And the reason I know something about this is that I lived in Armenia for a few years. I opened the US embassy there after the Soviet Union collapsed and struggled through winters time, right? with no electricity and right. you know freezing cold and whatever. It was a very memorable period in my life. And I built an embassy from the ground up. When I first got there, we had no motor pool, we had no drivers we had no security, we had to find all and train all these people, um, which was a very interesting exercise, particularly in the absence of electricity. Wow. And um, it's funny because that's an energy producing region, right? Well, maybe not Armenia. Only Azerbaijan. It's it's an oil rich country. It has oil wells. But but um, not Armenia. No. And... Armenia imports like 100% of its energy. And the countries around it were blockading it for a variety of reasons. So let's, before we talk about that, talk about the Jewish communities more specifically. The Armenian Jewish community has always been quite small. And the Armenians sort of smile and say, We're the least anti-Semitic corner of the former Soviet Union, but we didn't need Jews because Armenians have the same abilities and skills. So whereas other former Soviet republics needed people who were good at science and math and jewelry making and fine crafts. We have all that they do. In fact, in their folklore, have enormous respect for what they consider the three ancient cultures, which in their language all begin with a hard H sound, as in happy. And those cultures are the Greeks, the Hebrews, and the Armenians. Huh. And for them, those cultures are far superior to any to other culture around the world. them. Yeah, right. And also, when I was there, the president of Armenia, who was born and raised in Lebanon and therefore spoke French, and we were perfectly at ease speaking French with each other, was married to a Jewish woman from St. Petersburg and had a son named David who had a bar mitzvah. I mean, there was a tiny Jewish community, mostly Ashkenazic from Russian-speaking parts of the former Soviet Union, but it never amounted to much historically. And it was true, as far as I could tell, there wasn't a grain of anti-Semitism in Armenia. It's just that, as they put it, we didn't need them. Georgia has had Jews since early, early on. I mean, probably since, you know, the time of Noah's Ark. I don't know. At least
1: the destruction of the first temple or maybe the second temple.
2: Certainly since the destruction of the second temple. Maybe not all the way back to the first temple times, but it's an old Jewish community and it has its own rights and it was never stomped out by the Soviet authorities. I mean, in the old Soviet days... I attended a bar mitzvah there where there were hundreds of people and nobody showed any concern about having foreigners there or anything. It was like very open. And today there are four or five functioning synagogues and Chabad and all kinds of things. So Georgia has a large and healthy Jewish community. Next time we'll get to Azerbaijan and then transition from that into the conflict. Thanks, Tom. We will talk next week. I look forward to it. It's time now for our old Jewish Joke of
1: the Week. Jewish humor Bubby and Zadie New, brought to you by Too Jewish as a public service. Rachel went off to New York to get her master's degree. While she was there, she met someone special. Mom, Dad, sit down. I have something very important to tell you, Rachel said upon her return home after graduation. "'I met a guy at school I really like. "'We decided we're gonna get married. Mazeltov, Rachel. "'I'm so happy for you,' gushed her mother, "'giving her a big hug. "'I hope you two will be very happy together. "'I can't wait to meet him. "Uh, "'Tell us more about him,' said her dad. "'Does he have any money?' "'Oh, Dad,' Rachel said. "'You men are all the same.' "'What do you mean?' asked her father. "'That was the first question he asked me "'about you, too.'" that was the old jewish joke of the week special feature of two jewish just for you you should live and be well and now a word of torah this week our people gets out of egypt Or to be more accurate, we chant the Torah portion of Bo, which includes the description of the exodus from Egyptian slavery and the establishment of the rites and rituals of the observance of the Passover. The build-up to this week's Parsha has been steady and dramatic. Plague has followed plague Ten of them, of course, rising in severity as the one God overcomes the long roster of Egyptian gods and idols and frees the people of Israel from their long night of oppression and slavery. Finally, in Bo, our ancestors become a free people. Since we are now liberated, you might expect us Israelites to immediately cast off the memory of oppression and enslavement to reject our history of degradation, move on to new and better things. Oddly, God, through Moses, commands us to do quite the opposite, to remember the slavery and how we were freed only by God's great acts. And from this point on, we are reminded repeatedly in the Torah to remember those in our own society who are oppressed and to help them, because after all, we ourselves were slaves in the land of Egypt. You were strangers in a strange land, we tell ourselves repeatedly in the Torah. Therefore, recalling our degradation, we must help the oppressed protect the strangers in our own land. I can think of no other people or nation that spends so much effort remembering how humble its origins were. Unlike many other national myths, We Jews do not highlight our ancient and sacred pedigree or our divine origin. Instead, we remind ourselves again and again that we are the descendants of slaves who had nothing to call their own, not even their bodies. Even on holidays that have nothing to do with the exodus or freedom, we incorporate our memory of slavery and liberation. Every Kiddush on every single Shabbat includes the phrase that we are celebrating Zecher Li Tziat Mitzrayim, to recall the exodus from Egyptian slavery. This message is powerful. We Jews are to remember the fact of our own oppression so that we will identify with those in our world today who need our help. The Sedra of Bo teaches that we must seek always to redeem the world through our own actions. Our connection with the lowly and our efforts to heal the world come from the knowledge that we have exactly that same background. It's a profound lesson in humility that leads directly to charity, tzedakah, and the promulgation of justice and righteousness in the world. Even in challenging times, perhaps especially in challenging times, we Jews must remember those who are oppressed, who have less than we, And no matter how much we rise in the world, no matter how influential or powerful individual Jews may be or our Jewish nation may become, we are always to identify with those who have less and who need our help. May we always remember this exodus and may it continue to influence us to create justice and righteousness in a problematic world. When we return in a moment on to Jewish, Rabbi Seth Farber, the founder and president of Etim, which helps Jews become fully accepted by the state of Israel, both by working with and challenging the Israeli rabbinate, will explain the complexities of his outstanding work. Rabbi Farber is the recipient of the 2022 Kohan Memorial Foundation Prize for his great work for Jewish unity, He'll be at Congregation Beit Simcha this coming Friday night, dinner at 5 p.m., services at 6.30 p.m., meeting at the JCC. Find out more when we come back in a moment on Too Jewish. We continue with our Too Jewish update on news of Jews around the world with commentary. Historian Paul Johnson passed away last week at the age of 94. His most famous quote about Jews is probably this one. It comes from his best-selling 1987 book, still the best one-volume Jewish history available, A History of the Jews. Paul Johnson wrote, "...the world without the Jews would have been a radically different place. Humanity might have eventually stumbled upon all the Jewish insights, but we cannot be sure." All the great conceptual discoveries of the human intellect seem obvious and inescapable once they have been revealed, but it requires a special genius to formulate them for the first time. The Jews had this gift. To them we owe the idea of equality before the law, both divine and human, the sanctity of life and the dignity of human person, of the individual conscience, and so a personal redemption of collective conscience, and so of social responsibility, of peace as an abstract ideal and love as the foundation of justice, and many other items which constitute the basic moral furniture of the human mind. Without Jews, the world might have been a much emptier place. In over 50 books that Paul Johnson wrote or edited, he explored the histories of Christianity, Judaism, Britain, the United States, and dozens of figures, including George Washington, Napoleon, Churchill, Socrates, Mozart, and many others. A restless intellect and a wonderful and fluid writer, he made history come alive for millions of readers. Paul Johnson was born into a working-class Catholic family in Manchester in 1928. A brilliant student, he won a scholarship to Oxford. After serving in the army, where he rose to the rank of captain, Paul Johnson wrote for left-wing magazines. In books and articles, he championed high culture, panning modern trends he found insultingly unintellectual, from James Bond movies to pop music. In 1965, Johnson became editor of the left-leaning New Statesman, leading it to its greatest circulation ever. He resigned five years later, devoting his time to writing books. Paul Johnson eventually moved right. He became an influential conservative thinker, writing for a wide variety of publications, including the Downmarket Daily Mail. An iconoclast to the end, he told reporters, the only value consistent through his long peripatetic life was his strong Catholic faith and his sense of right and wrong. A History of the Jews, that Johnson published in 1987, was one of his most influential books and most valuable. The New York Times called it a tour de force and a remarkable achievement. Arthur Hertzberg reviewed it. He observed Johnson differed from most other historians. He didn't hold up assimilation as the end goal of Jewish history. Instead, Johnson displayed a sense of wonder about Jews and Judaism, conveying admiration along with scholarly analysis. Arthur Hertzberg wrote, At the very end of the book, Paul Johnson rises beyond most of the contemporary writers about Jewish history. A succession of authors have told the story of Jewish experience as leading towards the acceptance of the Jews by themselves and others as just like everybody else. Johnson knows this is not so. Jews are not, even now, like everybody else. Johnson understands that the continuing struggle against anti-Semitism has not been the meaning of Jewish history. Jews have persisted because they kept trying to be what they thought they should be. As Paul Johnson writes, The Jews believed themselves created and commanded to be a light to the Gentiles. They have obeyed the best of their considerable powers. In the 580-page masterpiece, Johnson traced the arc of Jewish history from ancient times to the modern state of Israel, describing the inner life of Jewish communities in the Middle East and Europe. Criticism was that he failed to closely enough examine Sephardi communities, and he brought Jewish history vividly to life. As Hertzberg wrote, his praise for Jews alienated some historians who accused Johnson of not being more critical. As Johnson wrote, no people has been more fertile in enriching poverty or humanizing wealth or in turning misfortune to creative account than Jews. Johnson forcefully condemned anti-Semitism. What strikes the historian surveying anti-Semitism worldwide over more than two millennia, he wrote, in words that have resonance right now, is its fundamental irrationality. It seems to make no sense. In the whole of history, it's hard to point to a single occasion when a wave of anti-Semitism was provoked by a real Jewish threat as opposed to an imaginary one. His History of the Jews, as well as Paul Johnson's many other books and thousands of articles, are a plea for scholarly understanding, intellectual rigor, and rationality. Johnson could be a gadfly and contrarian, but throughout his long life, he strove to understand history and help others learn from our past. Paul Johnson will be missed, but in particular, his history of the Jews remains a masterpiece. In Israel, the top court ruled 10 to 1 last week that at the extremely corrupt Aryeh Darih, leader of the Shas party, and a key ally of Prime Minister Bibi Netanyahu, should not be allowed to serve in the cabinet and as a cabinet minister because of a February 2022 conviction for tax fraud. Netanyahu should remove Derry from his post, the court said. Such a move would risk plunging the country into another political crisis. Derry's Shas party, which won 11 seats in Israel's 120-seat Knesset, in November, is a key component of Netanyahu's coalition. The Shas party hit back, calling the court decision arbitrary and unprecedented. They said the court today threw away the voices and votes of 400,000 voters of the Shas movement. The Israeli high court, again it voted 10 to 1, has been asked to rule on whether it was legally reasonable to appoint Arya Deri to posts in Netanyahu's cabinet, despite his quite recent tax fraud conviction. Judges ruled that his appointment cannot stand. This is, among other things, due to his backlog of criminal convictions and his failure to retire from public life, as he said he would do when being sentenced in the tax fraud case. The underlying legal issue is whether Arya tax fraud conviction constitutes a crime of moral turpitude, Until November's elections, that would have disqualified him from serving in government, but Netanyahu and his allies rushed through a change in the law in the wake of their election victory, clearing the way for Derry to be appointed a minister. Derry was a member of the Knesset at the time of his tax fraud conviction last year. He served nearly two years in Israeli prison for conviction on corruption charges— back when he was a minister in the year 2000. By the way, a minister is like a cabinet official in America. Last year, Derry resigned from the Knesset rather than giving the head of the election commission a chance to rule on whether the conviction disqualified him from serving as a minister in government. This means that the legal question of whether Rabbi Derry's fraud conviction counts as a crime of moral turpitude is not quite resolved. Derry allies have been signaling that the Shah's party leader will not resign his ministerial post, even if the court ruling goes against him, of course. In a statement made to fellow party members, Derry said he would continue the revolution even more strongly and with more force. Whatever that revolution is, I'm not sure. Maybe against honesty? Derry's refusal to resign, or Netanyahu's refusal to remove him, sets up a potential constitutional crisis, pitting the government against the Supreme Court of Israel. Netanyahu and his coalition partners have 64 seats in the 120-seat Neset, a majority of four. Derry's Shas party holds 11 of those 64 seats. Dismissing Derry would likely remove Shas from the coalition and plunge the government into crisis again. And that's the Two Jewish News of Jews, Round the World. We welcome back to Two Jewish, our guest this morning. Rabbi Seth Farber is the founder and executive director of E Team, the Jewish Life Advocacy Center, which facilitates Jewish life by working hard to make Israel's religious establishment inclusive. Um, we talked a little bit at the beginning of this show about the work that you do in counseling families and try to bring them into greater inclusivity. Um, to, This new government in Israel, it's brand new. We don't know exactly what will take place. Do you see a likelihood of improvement? Is there more work for E-Team to be done now than there was even a couple months ago?
3: So it's a complicated question, kind of too early to tell. Certainly, we've developed over the course of the last 18 years or so, strong connections within the government on all levels. In the last government, I was very much at the table in terms of formulating the coalition agreement and trying to make this government of Israel much more sensitive to the Jewish needs of the Jewish people. Uh, This particular government has some challenges. Some of the members of the government are less sensitive to the broader needs of the Jewish people. But there are definitely, definitely people from the government who we've met with and we continue to meet with to discuss in particular issues. So, yes, is a general fear that this is going to be bad news, but I don't believe that. I'm an optimist by my DNA, and I believe that there's tremendous opportunities all the time. One of the things I like to say about each team, and we have you know, 27 people working for in our organization, professionals and six full-time lawyers, and we spend a lot of time in the Knesset. One of the things I like to say is that we're working at a transitional moment in Jewish history, Many people think that Israel is 75 years old. We're about to celebrate Israel's 75th anniversary in the coming month. Absolutely. But I like to think about Israel as 75 years young. We're just beginning this process of understanding what it means to be a Jewish people, or to be a Jewish state for the Jewish people. We have big security concerns here in Israel, and those haven't gone away. But we're beginning to settle into what it means and mature into a place where we want to be a country for the Jewish people. And there's debates about how exactly that will play itself out. So it's not surprising to me that some of the issues that we deal with, whether the issues of conversion or the issues of recognizing rabbis, the issues of what it means to get married in Israel or even buried in Israel, are still working themselves out. On a daily basis, The team sees tens of families who are disenfranchised by the religious establishment. And we want to help them feel empowered. We want to help them feel Jewish. We want to help them live Jewish lives. But a a secondary goal or maybe even a primary goal is to transform Israel systemically, not just to help the individual family, but to transform Israel systemically so that for the long term, israel will be a place that is respectful and responsive
1: i want to pick up on the comment you made about conversion you just mentioned it conversion has been a flashpoint a complex issue for the state for a long time you're an orthodox rabbi um, even some orthodox conversions done outside of the land of israel outside of israel are not accepted by the Rabbanut. how does he team um, deal with that question when it's approached within the country right. so
3: in this uh, let me take a step back and just remind our listeners that in israel there's actually two definitions of what it means to be jewish you can be jewish for purposes of emigration to israel under the law of return that enables anybody who's got a jewish grandparent to make aliyah and immigrate to israel and there's a second definition for the purposes of marriage which is controlled by the rabbis. So someone who is a reformed convert or grew up reformed can make Aliyah without a problem. And we get calls like that all the time when we want to help them as members of the Jewish people come to Israel and feel comfortable there. But when they come to Israel, sometimes they find that when they want to come get married, the rabbis doesn't recognize their Jewishness. And this, as you mentioned, also happens to people who grew up Orthodox or convert converts you know, through the Orthodox denomination. We do our best to try to enable. So we give people the opportunity if they want to prove their Jewishness, and we go to court on a regular basis. I would say almost every day we're in a rabbinical court helping someone prove their Jewish status into the satisfaction of the rabbinate. I should mention, we get more than 4,000 calls just on our hotline every year, another 2,500 through our chatbot, and another three to 4,000 on our conversion hotline. So we get a serious amount of calls from people who are really, really stuck. And what we try to do, first of all, is enable them to do what's good for them, what they want to do. So if they want to get married in the rabbinate or buried in the rabbinate, we want to help them prove their status in the rabbinate. If they aren't halachically Jewish to the satisfaction of the rabbinate, we want to help them convert through the National Conversion Authority. Over the course of time, we've also realized that one of the ways to transform the National Conversion Authority is to compete with them. Sometimes competition is the best way to get someone to change. So we actually, the team, have opened up our own rabbinical court. It's an orthodox rabbinical court. Today it's doing about 20% of the conversions in Israel. And it's the largest orthodox conversion court in the world, except for the State of Israel National Conversion Court. And we're actually competing with the rabbinists to help particularly immigrants, primarily from the former Soviet Union, who want to live Jewish lives. They want to be fully Jewish, but they're not able to traverse the, the national conversion authorities conversion court. So when it comes to, let me just try to make it a little more concrete. Let's say someone grows up in Los Angeles and they make Aliyah because they have a letter from their conservative rabbi.
1: Very fine place to grow up speaking personally. Uh. <laughs> a personal
3: company. And then they want to get married or their child wants to get married. Well, their child wants to get married. How do they prove they're Jewish? Well, they bring a letter, the same letter they made Aliyah with that says their rabbi who they grew up in the community, they've been there for four or five generations in LA. They come to the rabbin and the rabbinate says, we don't recognize this rabbin. And the rabbinate actually maintains a list of rabbis. A- who a- rabbi, approved sure. rabbis, right. Exactly. So, And one of the things e-team has done, I'll just say this in parentheses, is that E-Team has uh, actually, we actually went to court, to sue the rabbinate to publish their list. And now they publish their list all the time because it used to be a secret list. That is not the way a country right. should operate. That's the way the no. Shtetl operates, but not the way a country should operate. And now the list is public. So we'll take this individual and we'll try to connect him or her to someone who is on the list who can write a letter certifying their Jewishness. And generally, that, that's a process that takes a couple of weeks and it requires a lot of connections around North America, or truth is around the world, because we do it all the time, almost every day with somebody. And then, um, and there's about uh, a thousand, a little over a thousand people every year who have to go through this process. It doesn't have to be painful. If people understood what, what they have to do and they understood how they could do it, it's easily doable. But unfortunately, they're often, in Hebrew, we say there's a phrase, you know, they, they were thrown down the steps. You know, yeah. people are told no before they said, we're so happy you're here. Our criteria are X or Y or Z, and we embrace you. We're so happy you want to live a Jewish life and you want to get married Jewish or very Jewish or whatever it is. So that's something that the team can do that uh, few others have the, uh, with, the breath to be able to do. So in that case, and we help people every single day, who want to do you know if someone doesn't want to get married through the rabbinate and there's more and more people doing that they're saying we don't want the rabbinate because they're so negative we're trying to do two things we understand that and we want to help them get married jewish outside the rabbinate as well but what's much more interesting for me and much more important for me is the long-term vision of what the state of israel not what it is but what it could be and israel could be and actually i'll, I'll even to refine even more and what israel should be is a place that welcomes people, embraces people, enables people, empowers people, ennobles people to live Jewish lives in, you know, the diverse ways they want to live them. And in
1: meaningful and, and creative ways, uh, important ways.
3: Yep. Absolutely. The kind of Judaism that, the kind of Orthodox Judaism, Halachic Judaism that I believe in, is one that enables, that, that ennobles people's lives, that makes people's lives much more meaningful and special and significant. And unfortunately, when you deal with a big bureaucracy, that doesn't always
1: happen. Is it inevitable th- when you have, um, I don't want to call it a theocracy exactly, but when you have religion and government tied together, there's power and there's money involved for it to become bureaucratic and, um, I don't know, uh, unreasonable in its approaches? This is
3: this question. It's one I get a lot when I lecture around America. Do I believe in the separation of uh, synagogue and state, if you will? So, if I had to choose right now, given all the alienation that I see, I would probably say let's separate it. But my longer-term vision is not that. I don't think for 2,000 years we prayed. Bring us back to Zion, right? I don't. I don't think we did that so there, the state wouldn't have a Jewish character. I think, and I'll, I'll, I'll explain what I mean. The issue is not the connection between synagogue and state or government you know religion and government, but the bigger question is politics and religion. That's where the problem lies. There's all too often political games, um, money, power, etc, that are associated with Jewish life. If we could somehow separate religion from politics, that would enable people to live Jewish life in a meaningful way. All too often people are uh, subjected to all sorts of decisions that are not substantive in nature but political in nature. When I see the chief rabbis give drashot, when they give their sermons on Saturday night in public and they make political comments that sometimes attack me personally or my organization, I feel like that isn't the role of a chief rabbi. No. And that isn't the role of the chief rabbis. They shouldn't be attacking. They should be embracing. There are examples of this. Think about the way, uh, again, with some of the caveats in place that we don't need to go into, but the way the chief rabbi of England functions as a moral force.
1: Right, right. And is it, a leader for the
3: entire Jewish community, or a majority of the Jewish community. Not everybody supports everything.
1: Of course. Of course,
3: his model is not perfect, but there it's a much more relevant model that still enables Jewish life to be led in a meaningful way. On the, you know, on the day-to-day level.
1: It, it does seem uh, almost inevitable. I mean, the last government before this one is the only one that didn't have religious parties built into the structure with accommodations made because of their requests, you know, the politics of religion, if you will. Um, do you envision a way that Israel will really ever be able to get away from that?
3: I do. I do I, I, as I mentioned before, I'm an optimist. I think that the power of Jewish life is so strong that eventually people will realize that there should be more choices in this country. Monopolies are never good, and certainly not in religion. Um, even in the, one of the things we like to talk about, we have the, I mentioned, we team has this conversion court called Yurka Halacha. And when people are very critical of us and say, well, the chief rabbinate should have an absolute monopoly on what conversion is in Israel. We always point to the fact that in the times of the Sanhedrin, 2000 years ago, in the times of uh, the temple, it, even though the Sanhedrin, right, the central Jewish rabbinical court in Jerusalem kind of was manifest as the strongest power in the country, but there were local rabbinical courts that handled conversions as well. So there was never ever this monopoly, and it's simply a, it's a, distortion of Jewish history to claim that once upon a time, Jewish life was monolithic or Jewish life was uh, myopic. And I think the attitude of many of the chief rabbis of the last two or three cohorts has been, we need to have absolute power. And we all know, right? Cause we, all of our listeners know about Lord act, right? Yeah. Absolute power corrupts. Absolutely. Right. And that's where the problem lies. So if we could, Divorce religion from politics, if we could get a sense of the power of diversity, the power of choice, the power of meaning as Jewish life moves itself forward, I think that is ultimately what's going to carry the day in this country. And I think in certain circles, I see it already happening. People already appreciate when people come to our office, even members of the right wing, and they see what we're doing. It's makes a big difference. I'll just give you a, a quick example of it, okay? There's Please. a very, very prominent rabbi who has been very, very publicly uh, opposed to the Team York Halacha conversion court, okay? He's attacked us publicly many, many, many times. But when he met a young boy in a kibbutz who was about to have a bar mitzvah, and it turned out that his mom was an immigrant from the former Soviet Union who wasn't halachically Jewish, and he realized that in a secular kibbutz, they would, the chief rabbinate of which he's a member, would never convert that child. He turned out to, to convert the child. <laughs> so, in other words, you have these ironies that go on. People say, like, you're doing something important. In other words, publicly we have to disagree with you. But in private, we obviously agree with you. You're obviously doing something that's super important for the future of the state of Israel. So people understand the significance and the meaning of what we're doing. And in the last five years, we've converted almost 2,000 people.
1: That's fantastic.
3: And we have a great opportunity to change things. So we're doing it in three ways just to kind of sum up. One way is we just help people on a daily day basis. We hold their hands figuratively. We take them into courts. We take them into marriage registration bureaus. We take them to funerals. We help them at the funerals, et cetera. We have a second division that's a legal division with a public policy arm that tries to transform things through the courts and through working with the decision makers, et cetera. And we also have a group, the Team Geruch HaLachah group, is basically competing with the religious establishment, not working with it or trying to transform it, but actually competing with it in an effort to transform it ultimately I'm sure that there's more than one way to live Jewish life in Israel.
1: I want to thank Rabbi Seth Farber for a great visit here on 2Jewish. You can come to Beit Simcha if you're in Tucson and hear him this Friday night when he receives the uh, Kohan Memorial Foundation Award for his terrific work for Unity of the Jewish People. Where can people go to find out more about E-Team and more about you?
3: So the easiest find place to find information about us is to log on to the E-Team website. It's itim.org.il. Uh, Anybody should—it's very easy to find me on the internet. You can certainly feel free to reach out to me directly through the team website or through or to my team, and we're happy to meet as many people as possible.
1: Rabbi Farber, thank you so much. We will look forward to seeing you soon. When we come back on Two Jewish, we'll hear about next week's guest. Get a final musical playout. We are the soul of Tucson. We are your neighbors and
0: friends. Our commitment to provide the very best, relies on the finest products and services you, our community, has to offer. Together, we make Tucson thrive. When we win, you win. Casino del Sol, the soul
1: of Tucson. Enterprise of the Pasquayaki tribe. Thanks for being here with us this morning on To Jewish with me, Rabbi Sam Kohan, Join us next week. Our guest will be Chaim Rosenberg, author of The Shield of David, A History of Jewish Servicemen in the American Armed Forces. Join us at Congregation Beit Simcha, Friday night, services in Oneg Shabbat at 6.30 p.m., Saturday morning 2, 9 a.m. Torah Study, 10 a.m. services, Torah Reading in Kiddush, live in person, and available on our Facebook page. And this Friday night, meet our Kohan Memorial Foundation honoree, our guest this morning on 2 Jewish, Rabbi Seth Farber, Team. There's a dinner at 5 p.m. with Rabbi Farber, services at 6.30 p.m., all at the Tucson J. Our playout this morning is one more song honoring my grandson Ezra's Me Law last week. It's Yishai Rebo's song, Matsilo Yom. God saves me every day, and the prophet Elijah will come, as he comes to every Bris by tradition. My friends, have a Shavuot Tov, a good week, a healthy week, and a week we pray profoundly of peace. <laughs>
3: אבל זה רק עניין של זמן עד שהסתדר הציפייה
0: היא גדולה הניצנים כבר נראות וככה זה העם הזה לא יניח לעצמו עד שיבוא אליהו זכור לטוב שהוא בסוף, יהיה Sponsored by two Jewish radio programs, Tucson, Arizona.